This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Lone Star Ranger by Zane Gray, Chapter 2 A thought kept repeating itself to Duane, and it was that he might have spared himself concern through his imagining how awful it would be to kill a man. He had no such feeling now. He had rid the community of a drunken, bragging, quarrelsome cowboy. When he came to the gate of his home and saw his uncle there with a meddlesome horse, saddled, with canteen, rope, and bags all in place, a subtle shock pervaded his spirit. It had slipped his mind, the consequence of his act. But sight of the horse and the look of his uncle recalled the fact that he must now become a fugitive. An unreasonable anger took hold of him. "'The damn fool!' he exclaimed hotly. "'Meeting Bain wasn't much, Uncle Jim. He dusted my boots, that's all. And for that I've got to go on the dodge.' "'Son, you killed him, then?' asked the uncle huskily. Yes, I stood over him, watched him die. I did as I would have been done by. I knew it. Long ago I saw it coming. But now we can't stop to cry over spilt blood. You've got to leave town in this part of the country. Mother! exclaimed Duane. She's away from home. You can't wait. I'll break it to her what she's always feared. Suddenly Duane sat down and covered his face with his hands. My God! Uncle, what have I done? His broad shoulders shook. Listen, son, and remember what I say, replied the elder man earnestly. Don't ever forget. You're not to blame. I'm glad to see you take it this way, because maybe you'll never grow hard and callous. You're not to blame. This is Texas. You're your father's son. These are wild times. The law as the rangers are laying it down now can't change life all in a minute. Even your mother, who's a good, true woman, has had her share in making you what you are this moment. For she was one of the pioneers, the fighting pioneers of this state. Those years of wild times before you was born developed in her instinct to fight, to save her life, her children, and that instinct has cropped out in you. It will be many years before it dies out of the boys born in Texas. I'm a murderer, said Duane, shuddering. No, son, you're not, and you never will be. But you've got to be an outlaw till time makes it safe for you to come home. An outlaw? I said it. If we had money and influence, we'd risk a trial. But we've neither. And I reckon the scaffold or jail is no place for Buckley Duane. Strike for the wild country. And wherever you go, and whatever you do, be a man. Live honestly, if that's possible. If it isn't, be as honest as you can. If you have to herd with outlaws, try not to become bad. There are outlaws who are not all bad, 
many who have been driven to the river by such a deal as this you had. When you get among these men, avoid brawls. Don't drink. Don't gamble. I needn't tell you what to do if it comes to gunplay, as likely it will. You can't come home. When this thing is lived down, if that time ever comes, I'll get word into the unsettled country. It'll reach you some day. That's all. Remember, be a man. Good-bye. Duane, with blurred sight and contracting throat, gripped his uncle's hand and bade him a wordless farewell. Then he leaped aside the black and rode out of town. As swiftly as was consistent with a care for his steed, Duane put a distance of fifteen or eighteen miles behind him. With that he slowed up, and the matter of riding did not require all his faculties. He passed several ranches and was seen by men. This did not suit him, and he took an old trail across country. It was a flat region with a poor growth of mesquite and prickly-pear cactus. Occasionally he caught a glimpse of low hills in the distance. He had hunted often in that section, and knew where to find grass and water. When he reached this higher ground he did not, however, halt at the first favorable camping spot, but went on and on. Once he came out upon the brow of a hill and saw a considerable stretch of country beneath him. It had the gray sameness characterizing all that he had traversed. He seemed to want to see wide spaces, to get a glimpse of the great wilderness lying somewhere beyond to the southwest. It was sunset when he decided to camp at a likely spot he came across. He led the horse to water, and then began searching through the shallow valley for a suitable place to camp. He passed by old campsites that he well remembered. These, however, did not strike his fancy this time, and the significance of the change in him did not occur at the moment. At last he found a secluded spot, under cover of thick mesquites and oaks, at a goodly distance from the old trail. He took saddle and pack off the horse. He looked among his effects for a hobble, and finding that his uncle had failed to put one in, he suddenly remembered that he seldom used a hobble, and never on this horse. He cut a few feet off the end of his lasso, and used that. The horse, unused to such hampering of his free movements, had to be driven out upon the grass. Duane made a small fire, prepared and ate his supper. This done, ending the work of that day, he sat down and filled his pipe. Twilight had waned into dusk. A few wan stars had just begun to show and brighten. Above the low, continuous hum of insects sounded the evening carol of robins. Presently the birds ceased their singing, and then the quiet was more noticeable. When night set in, and the place seemed all the more isolated and lonely for that, Duane had a sense of relief. It dawned upon him all at once that he was nervous, watchful, sleepless. The fact caused him surprise, and he began to think back, to take note of his late actions and their motives. The change one day had wrought amazed him. He who had always been free, easy, happy, especially when out alone in the open, had become in a few short hours bound, serious, preoccupied. The silence that had once been sweet 
now meant nothing to him except a medium whereby he might the better hear the sounds of pursuit. The loneliness, the night, the wild, that had always been beautiful to him, now only conveyed a sense of safety for the present. He watched, he listened, he thought. He felt tired, yet he had no inclination to rest. He intended to be off by dawn, heading toward the southwest. Had he a destination? It was vague as his knowledge of that great waste of mesquite and rock bordering the Rio Grande. Somewhere out there was a refuge, for he was a fugitive from justice, an outlaw. This being an outlaw then meant eternal vigilance, no home, no rest, no sleep, no content, no life worth the living. He must be a lone wolf, or he must herd among men obnoxious to him. If he worked for an honest living, he must still hide his identity and take risks of detection. If he did not work on some distant outlying ranch, how was he to live? The idea of stealing was repugnant to him. The future seemed grey and sombre enough, and he was twenty-three years old. Why had this hard life been imposed upon him? The bitter question seemed to start a strange iciness that stole along his veins. What was wrong with him? He stirred the few sticks of mesquite into a last flickering blaze. He was cold, and for some reason he wanted some light. The black circle of darkness weighed down upon him, closed in around him. Suddenly he sat bolt upright, and then froze in that position. He had heard a step. It was behind him. No, on the side. Someone was there. He forced his hand down to his gun, and the touch of cold steel was another icy shock. Then he waited. But all was silent. Silent as only a wilderness arroyo can be, with its low murmuring of wind in the mesquite. Had he heard a step? He began to breathe again. But what was the matter with the light of his campfire? It had taken on a strange green luster, and seemed to be waving off into the outer shadows. Duane heard no step, saw no movement. Nevertheless there was another present at that campfire vigil. Duane saw him. He lay there in the middle of the green brightness, prostrate, motionless, dying. Cal Bane. His features were wonderfully distinct, clearer than any cameo, more sharply outlined than those of any picture. It was a hard face, softening at the threshold of eternity. The red tan of sun, the coarse signs of drunkenness, the ferocity and hate so characteristic of Bane, were no longer there. This face represented a different Bane, showed all that was human in him, fading fading as swiftly as it blanched white. The lips wanted to speak, but had not the power. The eyes held an agony of thought. They revealed what might have been possible for this man if he lived, that he saw his mistake too late. Then they rolled, set blankly, and closed in death. That haunting visitation left Duane sitting there in a cold sweat a remorse gnawing at his vitals, realizing the curse that was on him. He divined that never would he be able to keep off that phantom, 
He remembered how his father had been eternally pursued by the furies of accusing guilt, how he had never been able to forget in work or in sleep those men he had killed. The hour was late when Duane's mind let him sleep, and then dreams troubled him. In the morning he bestirred himself so early that in the gray gloom he had difficulty in finding his horse. Day had just broken when he struck the old trail again. He rode hard all morning, and halted in a shady spot to rest and graze his horse. In the afternoon he took to the trail at an easy trot. The country grew wilder. Bald, rugged mountains broke the level of the monotonous horizon. About three in the afternoon he came to a little river which marked the boundary line of his hunting territory. The decision he made to travel upstream for a while was owing to two facts. The river was high with quicksand bars on each side, and he felt reluctant to cross into that region where his presence alone meant that he was a marked man. The bottomlands through which the river wound to the southwest were more inviting than the barrens he had traversed. The rest of that day he rode leisurely upstream. At sunset he penetrated the breaks of willow and cottonwood to spend the night. It seemed to him that in this lonely cover he would feel easy and content. But he did not. Every feeling, every imagining he had experienced the previous night returned somewhat more vividly and accentuated by newer ones of the same intensity and color. In this kind of travel and camping he spent three more days, during which he crossed a number of trails, and one road where cattle, stolen cattle probably, had recently passed. Thus time exhausted his supply of food, except salt, pepper, coffee, and sugar, of which he had a quantity. There were deer in the brakes, but as he could not get close enough to kill them with a revolver, he had to satisfy himself with a rabbit. He knew he might as well content himself with a hard fare that assuredly would be his lot. Somewhere up this river there was a village called Huntsville. It was distant about a hundred miles from Wellston, and had a reputation throughout southwestern Texas. He had never been there. The fact was this reputation was such that honest travelers gave the town a wide berth. Duane had considerable money for him in his possession, and he concluded to visit Huntsville, if he could find it, and buy a stock of provisions. The following day, toward evening, he happened upon a road which he believed might lead to the village. There were a good many fresh horse tracks in the sand, and these made him thoughtful. Nevertheless he followed the road proceeding cautiously. He had not gone very far when the sound of rapid hoof-beats caught his ears. They came from his rear. In the darkening twilight he could not see any great distance back along the road. Voices, however, warned him that these riders, whoever they were, had approached closer than he liked. To go farther down the road was not to be thought of, so he turned a little way in among the mesquites and halted hoping to escape being seen or heard. As he was now a fugitive, it seemed every man was his enemy and pursuer. The horsemen were fast approaching. Presently they were abreast of Duane's position, so near that he could hear the creak of saddles, the clink of spurs. "'Sure he crossed the river below,' said one man. "'I reckon you're right, Bill. He slipped us.' 
replied another. Rangers, or a posse of ranchers in pursuit of a fugitive. The knowledge gave Duane a strange thrill. Certainly they could not have been hunting him, but the feeling their proximity gave him was identical to what it would have been had he been this particular hunted man. He held his breath. He clenched his teeth. He pressed a quieting hand upon his horse. Suddenly he became aware that these horsemen had halted. They were whispering. He could just make out a dark group closely massed. What had made them halt so suspiciously? "'You're wrong, Bill,' said a man, in a low but distinct voice. "'The idea of hearing a horse heave. You're worse than a ranger, and you're hell-bent on killing that rustler. Now I say let's go home and eat.' "'Well, I'll just take a look at the sand.' replied the man called Bill. Duane heard the clink of spurs on steel stirrup and the thud of boots on the ground. There followed a short silence which was broken by a sharply breathed exclamation. Duane waited for no more. They had found his trail. He spurred his horse straight into the brush. At the second crashing bound there came yells from the road and then shots. Duane heard the hiss of a bullet close by his ear and as it struck a branch it made a peculiar singing sound. These shots and the proximity of that lead missile roused in Duane a quick, hot resentment which mounted into a passion, almost ungovernable. He must escape, yet it seemed that he did not care whether he did or not. Something grim kept urging him to halt and return the fire of these men. After running a couple of hundred yards he raised himself from over the pommel, where he had bent to avoid the stinging branches, and tried to guide his horse. In the dark shadows under mesquites and cottonwoods he was hard put to it to find open passage. However, he succeeded so well, and made such little noise that gradually he drew away from his pursuers. The sound of their horses crashing through the thickets died away. Duane reined in and listened. He had distanced them. Probably they would go into camp until daylight, then follow his tracks. He started on again, walking his horse, and peered sharply at the ground, so that he might take advantage of the first trail he crossed. It seemed a long while until he came upon one. He followed it until a late hour, when, striking the willow brakes again and hence the neighborhood of the river, he picketed his horse and lay down to rest. But he did not sleep. His mind bitterly revolved the fate that had come upon him. He made efforts to think of other things, but in vain. Every moment he expected the chill, the sense of loneliness that yet was ominous of a strange visitation, the peculiarly imagined lights and shades of the night, these things that presaged the coming of Cal Bane. Doggedly Duane fought against the insidious phantom. He kept telling himself that it was just imagination, that it would wear off in time. Still, in his heart, he did not believe what he hoped. But he would not give up. He would not accept the ghost of his victim as a reality. Gray dawn found him in the saddle again, headed for the river. Half an hour of riding brought him to the dense chaparral and willow thickets. These he threaded to come at length to the ford. It was a gravel bottom and therefore an uneasy crossing. 
Once upon the opposite shore he reined in his horse and looked darkly back. This action marked his acknowledgment of his situation. He had voluntarily sought the refuge of the outlaws. He was beyond the pale. A bitter and passionate curse passed his lips as he spurred his horse into the brakes on that alien shore. He rode perhaps twenty miles, not sparing his horse nor caring whether or not he left a plain trail. "'Let them hunt me,' he muttered. When the heat of the day began to be oppressive, and hunger and thirst made themselves manifest, Duane began to look about him for a place to halt for the noon hours. The trail led into a road which was hard-packed and smooth from the tracks of cattle. He doubted not that he had come across one of the roads used by border raiders. He headed into it, and had scarcely travelled a mile when, turning a curve, he came point-blank upon a single horseman riding toward him. Both riders wheeled their mounts sharply, and were ready to run and shoot back. Not more than a hundred paces separated them. They stood then for a moment watching each other. "'Morning, stranger,' called the man, dropping his hand from his hip. "'Howdy,' replied Duane shortly. They rode toward each other, closing half the gap. Then they halted again. "'I seen you ain't no ranger,' called the rider, "'and sure I ain't none.' He laughed loudly, as if he had made a joke. "'How'd you know I wasn't a ranger?' asked Duane, curiously. Somehow he had instantly divined that his horseman was no officer, or even a rancher trailing stolen stock. "'Well,' said the fellow, starting his horse forward at a walk, "'a ranger'd never get ready to run the other way from one man.' He laughed again. He was small and wiry, slouchy of attire, and armed to the teeth, and he bestrode a fine bay horse. He had quick dancing brown eyes, at once frank and bold, and a coarse bronze face. Evidently he was a good-natured ruffian. Duane acknowledged the truth of the assertion, and turned over in his mind how shrewdly the fellow had guessed him to be a hunted man. "'My name's Luke Stevens, and I hail from the river. Who are you?' said this stranger. Duane was silent. "'I reckon you're Buck Duane.' went on Stevens. I heard you were a damn bad man with a gun. This time Duane laughed, not at the doubtful compliment, but at the idea that the first outlaw he met should know him. Here was proof of how swiftly facts about gunplay traveled on the Texas border. "'Wow, Buck,' said Stevens, in a friendly manner, "'I ain't presuming on your time or company. I see you're heading for the river.' but will you stop long enough to stake a feller to a bite of grub? I'm out of grub and pretty hungry myself, admitted Duane. Been pushing your hoss, I see. Well, I reckon you'd better stock up before you hit that stretch of country. He made a wide sweep of his right arm, indicating the southwest, and there was that in his action which seemed significant of a vast and barren region. "'Stock up?' queried Duane thoughtfully. "'Sure. A feller has just got to eat. I can rustle along without whiskey, but not without grub. That's what makes it so embarrassing, traveling these parts, dodging your shadow. Now I'm on my way to Mercer. 
It's a little two-bit town up the river a ways. I'm going to pack out some grub. Stephen's tone was inviting. Evidently he would welcome Duane's companionship, but he did not openly say so. Duane kept silence, however, and then Stevens went on, "'Stranger, in this here country, two's a crowd. It's safer. I never was much on this lone wolf dodging, though I've done it of necessity. It takes a damn good man to travel alone any length of time. Why, I've been that sick I was just aching for some rager to come along and plug me. Give me a partner any day.' Now, maybe you're not that kind of a fella, and I'm sure not presuming to ask, but I just declares myself sufficient. You mean you'd like me to go with you? asked Duane. Stevens grinned. Well, I should smile. I'd be particularly proud to be braced with a man of your reputation. See here, my good fella, that's all nonsense, declared Duane in some haste. "'Sure, I think modesty becoming to a youngster,' replied Stevens. "'I hate a brag, and I know use for these four-flush cowboys that are always looking for trouble and talking gunplay. Buck, I don't know much about you, but every man who's lived along the Texas border remembers a lot about your dad. It was expected of you, I reckon, and much of your rep was established before you thronged your gun.' I just heard that you was lightning on the draw, and when you cut loose with a gun, why, the figure on the ace of spades would cover your cluster of bullet holes. That's the word that's gone down the border. It's the kind of reputation most sure to fly far and swift ahead of a man in this country. And the safest, too. I'll gamble on that. It's the land of the draw. I see now you're only a boy though you're sure a strappin' husky one. Now, Buck, I'm not a spring chicken, and I've been long on the dodge. Maybe a little of my society won't hurt you none. You'll need to learn the country. There was something sincere and likable about this outlaw. I dare say you're right, replied Duane quietly, and I'll go to Mercer with you. Next moment he was riding down the road with Stevens. Twain had never been much of a talker, and now he found speech difficult. But his companion did not seem to mind that. He was a jocose, voluble fellow, probably glad now to hear the sound of his own voice. Twain listened, and sometimes he thought with a pang of the distinction of name and heritage of blood his father had left to him. End of chapter.